Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President, CEO, and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm honored and delighted to welcome each of you to today's teleconference and to introduce to you two of my esteemed and learned colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Chris Drynan, senior attorney, and Kevin Andrews, who's been with the firm at this point almost, I think, 10 years. Um, so welcome, gentlemen, and welcome to all of you. The topic for today is investigations of U.S. employers by federal agencies. So what we're planning to discuss in today's teleconference is to discuss all of the latest trends uh, in immigration enforcement for H-1B employers, which includes obviously computer programmer issues, wage levels and specialty occupation issues, increased site visits, and the importance of filing H-1 amendments before the location and the project changes. Second, we're going to talk about how investigations could be triggered by you, maybe inadvertently or by some of your actions that may be causing this, the, the investigation to get triggered or get onto the spotlight by the federal agency. And third, hopefully we can share some best practices, some tips with how you can hopefully avoid or try to comply with the law, avoid being subject to the investigation, and hopefully, if you are, how to try to comply in advance before anything is actually triggered. So with that, um, can we talk a little bit, uh, Chris, how can I put you on the spot and ask you to talk a little bit about the new government policies in the H-1 program? Well, there's been a lot of talk about H-1Bs from the new administration, um, which uh, spilled over from the from the campaign, in all honesty. Um, on April 3rd of this year, there was a USCIS press release or news release um, announced, uh, where they announced what, what they called multiple measures to deter and detect H-1B visa fraud and abuse. Um, basically, USCIS said that they would use uh, some new criteria to determine which H-1B employers would get selected for site visits and or investigations. Around the same time, the Department of Labor also issued a, a press release um, basically saying that they were going to seek to protect U.S. workers uh, from discrimination by H-1B employers or H-1B workers um, by providing what they call greater transparency and oversight. Um, also around the same time, uh, President Trump signed what, what he called the Buy American and Hire American Executive Order, um, which called for a review of the H-1B program. Um, and it specifically asked USCIS to, quote, suggest reforms to help ensure that H-1B visas are awarded to the most skilled or highest paid petition beneficiaries. Yeah, Chris, and um, I think the issue with that executive order is that it seems to be consistent with a USCIS policy memo that was released right around the same time. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, all this is happening right at the peak of uh, and and towards the end of cap season when we're filing these cap cases. So this is all like new information that we wish we would have had weeks in advance to prepare for the H-1B cap season. But this March 31st, 2017 USCIS policy memo states that 
quote, an entry-level computer programmer position would not generally qualify as a position in a specialty occupation, end quote. And so I think something that's, I mean, one thing that's very troubling there is uh, people who have filed cases for computer programmers, and perhaps if it was filed under that level one entry-level wage. But I think another thing that's really troubling beyond that occupational classification is a footnote um, in this memo, footnote six specifically, if you want to look up the memo online, it says that, quote, if a petitioner designates a position as a level one entry level position, and that's what the LCAs are for a lot of cases, for example, such an assertion will likely contradict a claim that the proffered position is a particularly complex, specialized, or unique compared to other positions with the same occupation. So basically, if it's chosen, if you choose a level one occupational wage on the LCA, could that trigger at least higher scrutiny about whether the job is a specialty occupation? So I think something that worries a lot of folks out there participating in the H-1B program is whether this means that level two could be considered the new level one, particularly if you are H-1B dependent or working at a third-party work location. And there were a couple of things that were interesting about that memo. As you noted, this literally came out the day that the first H-1B petitions were being were being sent out. Right. Which is incredible timing. It's hard to believe that's really, that's just a coincidence. Coincidental. <laughs> it's very difficult to believe. And the other thing is that the memo says that this is not a change in policy um, and that this is, is, is just uh, essentially restating existing existing practice, which I don't think any of us really thought was was. Yeah, it's funny, legitimate. like three-quarters of the memo was explaining how it was not new, right. and it's just a reinterpretation of something. So that's how they were hoping to avoid a lawsuit or litigation. <laughs> right. Absolutely. But the fact is that by law, all that the employer needs to show is that the job is sophisticated and complex enough that a bachelor's degree or its equivalent is considered... Uh, the minimum for the occupation. Nowhere does it say that if it's a level one that only requires a bachelor's and no experience, that somehow it should no longer be eligible for an H-1. So that actually contradicts the statute in that clear sense. Mm -hmm. And it's almost if an employer or any one of us as private citizens had done something that was so sneaky and almost unethical, probably illegal on the last day before someone could change and correct because you need seven to nine days for the LCA to sign and be co come back when we are ready to file the H-1 petitions and that memo was released by one of us as private companies mm -hmm. or private businesses, we'd probably be in jail for fraud and misrepresentation <laughs> after taking millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in filing fees and legal fees from the, uh, you know, from our clients. And yet the government is doing this willy-nilly. So as employers... Remember, we can hold the government's feet to the fire. Thanks to all of those people that challenged President Trump, uh, whether it was with his executive order and travel ban or whatever, because when you give absolute power leads to absolute corruption. Absolute power is a problem. And we, as all of us, as employers, as individuals, should challenge whenever we think, challenge authority whenever we think something is being done that's illegal, immoral, unethical, or improper. And we would love to have the opportunity to work with you in that respect. And I, I also should point out, Sheila, that um, I think as far as our firm goes, the RFEs are just starting to kind of trickle in. We haven't seen a high rate of RFEs to see how USCIS is using this memo specifically or, or footnote six generally to 
you know, I don't think we've seen any language saying, well, you chose level one, therefore it's not a specialty occupation. But if they did, I think that would be very right. That's for when we file the appeal, like file that. an appeal and then <clears throat> go to the federal district court, because courts right now, as we can see from multiple courts, whether it's the Fourth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, uh, you know, they all are beginning to challenge a lot of Trump's executive orders. Uh, and so now is the time to say, hey, this is not old policy. This is a new interpretation uh, that needs to be challenged. And, and I think just as a, as a practical matter, kind of as a takeaway here for uh, companies that are participating in the H-1B program, I mean, the, the list that I kind of go through during consultations are if it's a company that does place people at third-party work locations and is H-1B dependent, you, you know, and ha- is relatively new, I think that kind of uh, recipe, when you add it all together, is just going to be something that would be subject to more scrutiny than a company that doesn't meet all of those criteria. Mm-hmm. So perhaps strategically going for a higher level uh, in certain cases might just be the more practical approach. It might not be cost effective. I think you have to do a case-by-case analysis of it, but um, just as a practical kind of takeaway about how to deal if it's a, a higher scrutiny type of uh, type of petitioner file. Yeah, and you know what? You're right. And to that extent, employers may hesitate to file H-1 petitions, may get nervous about what to do. They're waiting and watching. Everybody's waiting and watching to see what the administration's going to do and how it's going to all pan out. But I don't want the tail wagging the dog. I don't want the government changing policy and the law without doing it in the correct legal manner, because that is Congress's job to change the law. As long as we have H-1 petitions and the standard is at the minimum a bachelor's degree or its equivalent, then employers absolutely should file it and we should challenge the government and we need to hold their feet to the fire. So uh, hopefully we won't need to do that, but if we do need to do it and any of you as employers start seeing denials of H-1 petitions, as Kevin just pointed out on the first level one issue, it's a great opportunity for all of us to raise it and challenge it. And you don't have to spend a million bucks to fight the government. We can fight it with you. And especially if we can create sort of almost a class action, maybe have a lot of companies, employers and businesses do it together. I think we'll be able to have a much better chance of challenging the government. Okay. And the next issue, the second point that we want to talk about is the increased site visits and investigations. As all of you have already heard, and we have been continuing to see an increase in site visits from USCIS with respect to H-1 petitions, including more email and phone call attempts, both to end clients by the Fraud Detection and National Security and at by consular officers calling in and checking at consulates. So what FDNS generally does is they send an email with a lengthy questionnaire to the end client asking about details on the project the duration of the project, the work location, and other details. The site visits by these inspectors has also picked up for L1 cases and also with respect to the STEM F1 OPT extension program for students, for F1 students. Yeah, Sheila, the um, interesting thing about the, you know, the site visit program is, beca- is that it's become so much more uh, important and potentially impactful ever since a pol- another USCIS policy memo from July of 2015, so pre-Trump uh, administration. Uh, but this was based on a case called Matter of Semeo Solutions, I'm told it's how it's pronounced. Uh, but it involved the uh, issue of whether an H-1B amendment needs to be filed before there's a change in the work location. And so in Semeo, they said, yes, it's required if uh, USCIS considers 
a change in work location outside the normal commuting distance of the original work location, a quote-unquote material change. And so that means an amendment needs to be filed. And the critical thing is that it needs to be filed before the change occurs. Um, what USCIS did not talk about specifically, but I know does come up a lot in, in practice, is, well, what if the end client changes? It's, you know, the first location is in Cupertino, California, but the other one is a new client, but down the street uh, in the same town. Uh, Simeo Solutions didn't say anything about that. I think that the conservative approach there is that that would be considered a material change, and so an amendment would be required beforehand. And the interplay between whether that's required or not and site visits, I think, comes into play. The thing is with these site visits is that when USCIS reaches out to the employer for uh, confirmation of where the person is working, they're going to look at the most recent petition. And the conditions of the work and where the person is supposed to be working is on the LCA attached to the most recent approved petition, or at least the most recent filed petition if we're talking about somebody filing an amendment. So... Um, the need to, to do that, particularly for those that are IT professionals, particularly for those, uh, as well, as mentioned, it's involving third-party work locations, these are getting higher scrutiny because of FDNS. And the interesting thing I think about FDNS is um, this is a, a program under USCIS, the Fraud Detection National Security, that got built under the Obama administration and towards the end of the Obama administration, it was really starting to pick up steam in terms of increasing site visits. And, and now the new administration, this is something that aligns with the new administration's focus with trying to root out abuse in the H-1B program, trying to make sure that it's really the best and the brightest, not just anybody with a bachelor's degree uh, uh, having the uh, preference there. Well, he's asked to do research. The truth is there is no law yet. There is nothing about best and brightest. They're looking at it like it's a change. They keep saying it's no change. There's nowhere best and brightest. It's something that Trump has mentioned, that he wants to have that issue reviewed and investigated further. Right. Well, I, th I think that's exactly the point, because the the executive order, which we know what the effect that that has and, and with the, the binding effect that it has, but is to suggest reforms so that the H-1B visas are, are awarded on that more merited basis, on and most okay skilled and highest And it's okay if it's an paid. interpretation, but they can't change the law without mm -hmm. Congress getting involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, but... Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah, so Thank you, Kevin. So let's get to how in. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should just get a little bit in sort of broader picture of how investigations could get triggered, Chris. Well, uh, thank you, Sheila. The first thing to remember here is you're not dealing with just one agency here. There are lots of moving parts in any any immigration application. For example, if we're talking about an H-1B, uh, the first thing you have to get is a certified LCA from the Department of Labor. Then you file your petition with USCIS. And if you're talking about an employee who's outside the U.S., that employee is going to go to a U.S. embassy or consulate to apply for a visa stamp. Every one of these agencies has, has investigative assets. Um, I mean, DOL can investigate with wage and hour. Um, USCIS with the Fraud Detection National Security Directorate. Um, even the Department of State has, has fraud investigators that, that actually do uh, conduct investigations within the United States. Mm -hmm. Any one of these agencies can start an investigation, investigate a company. Uh, they can they can join together to investigate. They can in investigate it independently on their own. Mm -hmm. There are lots of lots of potential for for an investigation on an employer here. Okay, so thank you for that broad overview. And if I can get to you, Kevin, again with respect to FDNS site visits. Right. So FDNS is part of USCIS, like we were talking about before. Generally, the, the physical site visits occur after an H-1B petition is approved. Earlier, we were talking about how 
there's an increase in the email confirmation or the so-called cyber visits that are happening before the adjudications. But the, the again, going back to the importance of making sure the amendments are filed on time, you know, just because an H-1B petition is approved doesn't mean that USCIS can't later down the road check and see where the person, the beneficiary is working and issue a notice of intent to revoke an approved petition if the site uh, visit turns up that there's uh, contradicting information, like if the individual moved on to a different project but the amendment was not filed and this was just bad timing when, you know, when the individual moved in relation to the filing. So the, these site visits can happen even years later. You know, you, you can potentially get a three-year approval and we've had cases where one, two years down the road, USCIS, FDNS, is doing that site visit, and sometimes they even wait maybe uh, a few months or maybe in a couple years uh, to relay that information and translate it into actually getting a notice of intent to revoke. You know, they say, oh, we did the site visit in July of 2015, and now we're getting a notice of intent to revoke on July 2016, something like that we've seen. Um, So until that time, the employer and the employee can keep working till they get that, and at that point, they can still continue to do it until the petition's actually revoked um, and responded to. Um, you know, by, I guess, uh, the attorney or the employer having an opportunity to rebut any potential allegations. Right. And then again, just the, the importance of the timely H-1B amendments to make mm-hmm. sure that there's no gaps or contradictions uh, during that whole process. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Chris? And as, as Kevin mentioned, the most common uh, problem here is when FDNS turns up at, a, at a, what's supposed to be a work site which is, is inevitably going to be the, the work location listed on the most recent H-1B. Um, and they find the, the employee is no longer there. Um, that can result in, a, in what we call a notice of intent to revoke, where basically uh, the employer is asked to explain why the, why the employee is not where USCIS, USCIS expects them to be. Um, and, of course, you do, have, you do have the opportunity to respond to that. Um, and you can you can have the the petition reaffirmed if there's a legitimate explanation for that. Uh, maybe it was just bad luck; the employee was on vacation that day. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have a situation where the employee has has moved and there's there's not been an amendment filed, and an amendment was required to be filed, I mean this is going to lead to the revocation of the of the petition generally, which can leave the employee out of status if he or she is here. Uh, prevent them from getting a visa stamp if they're outside or returning if they're outside the U.S. Um, and this this type of thing can cause problems to the employer in the future, um, particularly if you're, we're talking about a, a consulting company. Um, they're, uh, some, if, after a, a revocation, their petitions in the future are probably going to get a lot more scrutiny uh, for things like employer-employee relationship. That's okay. a big problem ongoing for the employer if this happens. So as we're talking about, investigations can be triggered with because of FDNS coming in, because of things either mismatching or when they check in and they f- don't find all the that the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed in terms of filing those amendments, as Kevin talked about, and as Chris explained, where there's mismatch with LCA and other issues. The other place where investigations are often triggered is when an H4 or an H- H1B or an H4 dependent uh, during the visa interview at a U.S. consular post abroad. Mm-hmm. That could lead to referrals um, either questions or concerns, either to the U.S. Department of Labor, if it's a LCA issue, or to the FDNS investigators, if it's a, with the USCIS. And what ends up often happening, as many of you may have seen with your employees, is that the consular officer will often issue what's called the 221G, the blue sheet, request that are fairly open-ended, broad, expansive, and ask for a whole bunch of information 
uh, about H-1 workers for the company, their current location, their salaries, their job titles, basically trying to make sure that the employer is basically in compliance on every single person and whether it's all falling into place together. So it's pretty uh, pretty open-ended and scary. Yeah, Sheila, what we're seeing, it's always been the norm for a, for a consular officer to ask an H-1B applicant, uh, what is their job? Where are they working? What are, they, what are their duties? How much are they paid? Uh, this has always been sort of the normal procedure to make sure that everything is, is consistent with the H-1B petition. What we've seen a lot more in recent times is the consulate actually contacting the employer or contacting the end client to verify the details in the petition. Um, that, that's relatively, a relatively new development. It seems to become increasingly common. Um, a lot of times also you'll see what is called the Kentucky Consular Center, which is a, a part of the Department of State here in the United States, actually uh, to undertaking their own investigations of individual companies uh, based on essentially referrals from the consulates. Um, and if a consular officer, uh, after talking to the, to the applicant or, or doing this internal investigation, uh, determines that the employee is not working where they're supposed to, that they're benched, meaning they, they don't have a project, they're not getting paid, or they're not getting paid what the LCA requires them to get paid, they can deny the visa stamp and return the petition to USCIS for a revocation. Um, the employer at that point will have a chance to respond to that at some point in time. It could be years, 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 years down the road. Um, but and they, sometimes we find that by the time it's approved it's already and expired. reaffirmed, it's either already expired or there's a month left, mm -hmm. which kind of makes it almost drives people crazy. Mm -hmm. It's so unfair. The whole system is so unfair. Um, okay, so let's switch gears a little bit to the agencies that are sharing information. So you heard from the Chris and uh, Kevin right now about how the investigations are triggered by FDNS site visits, by consular interviews, by Department of Labor site visits, mismatches, all of those factors. Now we want to go into all of the different federal agencies are now sharing information with each other. How does that work, Kevin? Uh, yeah, thanks, Sheila. So. Well, Chris kind of mentioned an example of one where at the State Department consular interview, if there's information that comes up, they can relay that information to USCIS. So that, that's an obvious one. And, and Chris had mentioned earlier uh, all these different agencies that are involved. They, effectively, they all communicate with one another. But I think critically, like for an employer, when they're filing the petition, they need to remember when they're signing that uh, that LCA and signing, well, specifically the LCA, they're agreeing to cooperate with the Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division if there's an investigation uh, related to the LCA. That could be things like back wage violations, uh, things related to the, the document retention requirement for the LCA. Um, and the, de the Department of Labor does have a memorandum of understanding with all different federal agencies to share this information so it can easily open up. The I think the main conduits for these investigations for H-1B employers are Department of Labor, Wage and Hour Division, potentially, increasingly now FDNS with the, the site visits, um, and potentially now also the uh, review of the public access files, which I think is something that we'll talk about in, in a minute. But uh, Chris has... Uh, been around the block for a while now and has seen a lot of these. Let me let me throw a hypothetical to you and just in practice what you've seen the whole range and gambit. So let's say an FDNS investigator discovers an H-1B employer has been submitting fraudulent end client letters. Don't know who, who's submitting them, but they're in the filing and they've somehow determined that these are inconsistent. They contacted the employer and they don't know who these who these where these are coming from, but the person who's supposedly the signatory never signed them. What can happen? What can FDNS do? 
This is a this is a big problem, Kevin. Um, and employers have to be very very careful in this this type of situation because the the potential penalties here are, are absolutely enormous. Um, the things that can happen, USCIS probably as a first step would issue a notice of intent to revoke the petition, and they would uh, basically they would raise the issue of the alleged fraud in here, and give the employer the opportunity to respond. Now, of course, anything the employer responds with can be used against them later on. Um, in, in, in any further proceedings. Um, they could potentially refer this case to ICE uh, for a criminal investigation and potentially for the removal or deportation of any of the H-1B workers who are, who are in the U.S. based on and who are part of this allegedly fraudulent petition. Um, now, as a, as a corollary to that, these potentially deportable H-1B workers might find it in their interest to, to talk to the government and, uh, and to provide evidence, evidence against the employer, um, potentially in exchange for a, uh, what's called a U visa, which is for victims of crime, or for some other, other benefits that can be granted uh, to people who assist the U.S. government in investigation of a criminal case. Um, theoretically, they could refer this to a state or a county prosecutor um, where the, in the location where the fraud or the forgery occurred, if it was in the U.S., or they could even refer this to the FBI or to the local U.S. attorney um, for, uh, for a criminal investigation, potentially grand jury, um, and all the, the federal criminal proceedings that can lead from that. That all this sounds so scary, and I guess the lesson, and I know sometimes when people are desperate, whether as employers or particularly even as H-1B employees, to think that, hey, I am working in this location, I am doing this job, the end client is refusing to give me a letter, so why can't I just make a letter up or just fill in details basically confirming everything that I'm already doing? You and I both know that, that you know, America is a nation of laws, the rule of law is a big deal, and while we you know, expect everybody, the government, we expect the president to follow the law, we certainly as employers and employees need to follow the rules and the laws and the regulations. Um, I guess in defense, which is not a good defense, we don't want to be defending in a criminal action, but the potential defense is, look, all of this was actually accurate and correct, just that the person that should have signed refused to sign an exchange this was sort of an affidavit or an information saying this is what the person did. Now, it's not going to ultimately probably help them because the government's pretty strict about this. And talking about the government, Chris just mentioned FBI. In fact, we are seeing that the FBI has become more visible in investigating H-1B employers as more indictments and criminal prosecutions have gone public. The employers may think that they are only cooperating or working with FDNS or with Department of Labor, Wage and Hour Division, or even with ICE investigators. But then those investigators could be directly working or reporting to the FBI. And what ends up happening is then the FBI, the IRS, and investigators from other federal government agencies actually can now exchange information, collect evidence to support criminal charges relating to immigration fraud, visa fraud, mail fraud, wire fraud, tax fraud, conspiracy, etc. And we've seen this over and over again. When they can't do a whole bunch, they'll throw everything in the kitchen sink to see what sticks. And hopefully we're not going to get to that point as employers. Hopefully you're talking to your attorney as soon as you get the first letter 
from a federal agency or an RFE rather than waiting till afterwards or working with uh, almost unethical lawyers or working with in-house non-lawyers, paralegal staff that sometimes don't appreciate when they throw the employer by you know making the employer sign certain documents or the aid of H- head of HR because you don't want to be in a position where you could go to prison, let alone jail, for something that's done. So yes, Muthi Law Firm can work and help and guide you. We can negotiate with federal agencies, but obviously you want to minimize having to be in a position where you're digging yourself from a very deep hole. Uh, because inadvertently, a lot of things can happen, but you don't want to be considered as having an intentional, willful violation in many cases. And talking about that, let's try to get more positive because we're coming close to the 30 minutes. Let's look at possible best practices in order for an employer to comply with the rules, laws, regulations, policies. Uh, Kevin, if I can start with you and then Chris. Yeah, I think we just have like a handful of just really best practices for just, like you said, being proactive and not reactive, uh, not making uh, small problems into unnecessarily big, big ones. Really, I think one thing that's really kind of critical overall is just make sure that as employers, you're you're being uh, you're not passive in this process. You need to check the petitions that are being that you're signing under penalty of perjury. Make sure that the information that's stated there is accurate with respect to mainly the terms and conditions of employment. Uh, but the, but a critical one is salary. Uh, like we like Chris had mentioned before, there are agencies involved in looking into back wage issues. And I think what's critical is that when when certain exceptions come up, that the company is making sure that they're documenting those situations. So, if um, employees are are receiving, uh, well, I, I guess employees should not be paying for any part of the H one B process, and and they should be making sure that the uh, wage that they're receiving is consistent with the uh, wage on the LCA. Um, be careful not to give your employers, whether HR or management in the U.S. Uh, or employees in your back office in India, et cetera, for success in getting the H-1B petitions approved uh, onto um, uh, paying uh, end, end clients. That could lead to situations where the employee wants to, like you mentioned before, Sheila, create those forged documents to, to get a bonus. So um, it's critical when you pay the required wage, you're, you're not accepting any money from an H-1B worker. You're paying the wage. And the critical, I think what's critical there is to paying the wage when it's due. Uh, quite often we see in practice that there's sometimes a disconnect between when an employer, an H-1B employer, is being, uh, I guess, paid for the, the, the services that are being performed and when the beneficiary is being paid. And sometimes I, I've, I've just, when speaking to clients, see that there's a big disconnect. And I believe federal labor law requires that wages be paid at least on a monthly. It can't be any less inf- uh, frequent than on a monthly basis. So, uh Paying the required wages when due, I think, is like a really important best practice to prevent a lot of problems with uh, wage and hour division at Department mm-hmm. of Labor, at least. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Chris, what about in terms of when, you know, when should the employer start, for example, the payroll, mm-hmm. all of those factors? This is very important. This is a common, common mistake. Your H-1B workers need to go on the payroll as soon as they report for work. Um, you can't wait till they get a Social Security number. You can't wait till they get a, a, an in-client project. Um, you have to pay them as soon as they report for work. Uh, A lot of people, as an aside here, a lot of people think you can't pay people until they get their Social Security number. That's not true. Um, You can pay them while they're waiting for the Social Security number. That's perfectly allowable. Um, And delays in putting people on the payroll 
are at the source of a lot of uh, penalties and and back wage awards uh, from from the Department of Labor Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division. Uh, another common problem here is is the failure to to complete bona fide terminations when an employee employee leaves. Um, if you have an employee who's going to another to another company, uh, has, is no longer on a project, uh, or is just failing to to cooperate for whatever reason, you need to go through the procedures to do a bona fide termination. Revoke the LCA, revoke the H-1B petition, um, and normally offer them airfare back back home, which is a requirement of the H-1B regulations. Um, employees know that it's very easy to complain to, to DOL um, about, a, about a back wage violation. They can do this as soon as they get the approval notice from their new H-1B employer. Also, there's an incentive here sometimes for them to file this complaint uh, if they have a gap in their pay stubs um, and they need to show that they've, they've been maintaining their H-1B status. It's very easy to file a DOL complaint against your employer and use that as a rationale for the lack of your, your pay stubs. If I could just mention something here, um, they're, they're starting in January of 2017, there's a new regulation that allows for H-1B employees to have a potentially a 60-day grace period. If they otherwise have an I-94 that's valid beyond this date, if there is a, quote, cessation of employment, and uh, I'm raising this here because I hear a lot uh, in practice that, you know, sometimes people can't get the, the project and, mm-hmm. and they're benched, you know, right? Uh, if it's without pay, it's definitely a problem. But even if it's with pay, it's technically a status violation. And so sometimes what I'm hearing uh, is that there wants to be like kind of like a use of the, well, I don't have a project right now, so can I use this 60-day period thing mm-hmm. um, to hold me over until, and, and the answer is no. I mean, if there's a clear termination of employment, then such an individual would have uh, 60 days to be able to um, to, to find another H-1B employment or, or change status, maybe, maybe even file an H-1B petition with the same employer. But there has to be a clear cessation of or, or a cessation of employment, termination. And I think of they refer to it only one time during one H one B petition. Yes. So you Thank can't you. keep doing it every mm-hmm. single time, every exactly. you know, so two or three times a year, every time a project ends or benching or what have you. And I can tell you, I've talked to at least one person um, where where there was a USCIS decision. If you're terminated by an employer and later go back to that same employer by filing a new petition. USCS, at least in this one one decision I saw, said the sixty day grace period didn't apply. Oh, that's that's interesting. Well, it's a little. It's 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 that's not anywhere in the in the regulations, but that is perhaps USCS's interpretation here. And so what to, right? And what's interesting about this regulation is that it was something where the rulemaking and everything happened during the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. They pushed it in November for and the sixty day period. Seventeen three days, of, three right. days before exactly. Trump became uh, the president. So, so the spirit. Um, my point is that the spirit of as written may not be the spirit of its application of its now. intended mm-hmm. uh, how it's implemented, and also people are concerned that. Some of these regulations that were implemented, the latest, are the ones that are probably could get either revoked or canceled or somehow amended because they are, at the end of the day, the interpretations of the government. Uh, and so if the new president says, well, this is how I want it, uh, it's possible that that could actually be changed. Uh, so far, thank goodness they haven't done it, but he has kept, uh, I think, three months, six months, six months to look into a lot of these H-1B-related issues. And we've talked about this before as well, especially for IT consulting companies, that the H-1B amendments need to be filed before H-1B employees can move over to the new project. 
uh, because a properly timed amendment can actually prevent additional scrutiny from the USCIS if the information that the government has about the job matches the actual terms and conditions of employment. And if the government, if the FDNS investigator or ICE or anybody knocks on your door and says we're investigating this company on this H-1 petition, you can actually waive this amendment and say, well, actually, we filed this new amendment. You need to do because this was filed, whatever, a month ago, three months ago, because they might be working off of, as we talked earlier, six-month, one-year-old documents. They may not have the latest amendment that's filed. So it's your job as an employer to be more proactive and protect yourself. And Sheila, this on this point, often I hear it's that practically from a business perspective, it's very uh, much impossible to file the amendment first and before having the individual move. They mm-hmm. may result in losing the project if they have to wait that long, mm-hmm. that extra two weeks or whatever it would be to file the amendment first and wait for the receipt. Um, so I understand that in you know in the business world that that can be uh, burdensome. But this is a specific requirement now that that um, that we're seeing, you know, can have clear consequences if the site visit happens at a, at a bad time. Um, another thing about that, and it kind of relates to what you were talking about before about getting end client documentation. Sometimes you just can't get the end client documentation. Maybe you can't get it initially. File the initial petition without end client documentation. There's nothing in the regulations that says thou shalt provide an end client letter. It's just in practice what USCIS is focusing on. Maybe you'll get an RFE, and perhaps by then, maybe you have a bit of a rapport with the end client that getting some information like at least a telephone number and an email that you can provide in an affidavit to give to USCIS to say, hey, you can call this person, and they can confirm the project exists. Um, there, there are ways to work around the reluctance to get a very formal end client letter, and it's not that necessary that you get it up front. And I, I just want to convey that it shouldn't be a... Um, reason to stop you from filing an amendment on time. It can be a very lean filing. And what should, in terms of if there's an actual knock on the door by the site inspector, what is the exact process the employer needs to follow? Because I think people can be prepared mentally. Yeah, so uh, a big takeaway, I think, about compliance is companies need to have an action plan in the event of a site visit from any government official. So these site visits can happen at the company's headquarters, I mean, there can be an email or site visit at an, at an end client. Obviously, as an empl- H-1B employer, you have less control in that kind of scenario. But generally speaking, employers need to have a plan in place when somebody from the government walks into the door. There should be, a de- for example, there should be a designated point of contact that would physically meet and greet the individual and, and offer them water or ask for their identification. Um, the, the inspector, the, you know, they may kind of push the envelope on the on the physical premises of your business and try to wander around. And you, you really want to control that and kind of put that person into a conference room, uh, get them connected with the right person who would answer their questions. But there should at least be the designated point of contact to meet and greet. Maybe that's the same person who will be answering the questions, but um, that person should get familiar with uh, or or, uh, be able to refer questions to maybe there's an in-house counsel who who deals with these issues or there's outside immigration counsel. Um, So if they get calls like this, uh, the the team at the multi-law firm could potentially be available to guide and get on the conference call. We do this routinely for companies? We do do this routinely. We can offer that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. so, uh, and another thing, and, and Chris probably see, sees this a lot in practice, but, uh, you know, they, they may want to start talking to H-1B workers. And uh, I think one thing that's very important is prepping the employees ahead of time so that they're not alarmed and, and, and worried just that, you know, hey, this is something that could come up, not likely, but if it does, here's what happens. 
Um, but I think a lot of so in an annual monthly meeting, you're saying like with the employees or whatever, if there's an memo to say that it's becoming more and more common mm -hmm. for consulting companies to have investigations, do not be alarmed if a person comes in and investigates the company because this is now the trend. And if they do, do not answer questions. Tell them you need to speak with your lawyer, whatever. Basically prepare. What Kevin is talking about is preparing, prepping the client so that there's no the employee so that because the last thing you want is panic among employees, people running out the door, thinking they're abandoning a sinking ship when in fact the sh ship may not be sinking after all. Mm -hmm. And these, these site visits have become increasingly common, as you said, Chilla. And employees really should be prepared to, to answer these questions honestly about their, about their employment. Uh, employers cannot tell their, their workers not to answer questions because that could be considered obstruction of justice. Um, another thing to consider here, um, if you have an ICE agent uh, knock on your door and ask to review your I-9 forms, um, they do have the right to review I-9 forms, but you have the right to insist on three days to prepare. Um, so it's generally, generally not going to be in your interest just to let them in immediately and, and go through your I-9 forms. You should normally take advantage of those three days to contact, contact counsel, uh, review the I-9s, make sure there are no glaring errors or, or things that have been missed, so you can hopefully remediate whatever whatever is, is wrong in the I-9s before you have the, the investigator there. Obviously, not commit anything that's fraudulent or, or change anything inappropriately, but uh, showing that you're attempting to comply in good faith is a big part in avoiding uh, penalties, fines, et cetera. Yeah, we've worked on those cases where they've gotten the, the letter and within three days we're auditing several I-9s. But um, you're right, Chris, because the I-9 violations can be anywhere from $100 to $1,000 mm -hmm. per violation, and you can have dozens and dozens of violations on one I-9, right? M multiple violations on one I-9 for one employee. So it's quite a very quickly. <laughs> um, it's the same thing. And, and it, as an aside, once you have, if, when you do uh, provide these I-9s to the ICE investigator, don't let them, as Kevin said, don't let them just wander through the, wander around the premises. Don't let them look through all the files. Give them the I-9s, the I-9s only. Um, you really need to, to. Of the specific employees that they've that requested they've and for. don't open your I-9 right. file drawer and offer them because now you've given them access it's, to every it's, other it's file. It's important to limit their access to information to what, what you're legally required to give them. And it's the same for DOL investigations. If you have a DOL investigator come in and ask to see your, your H-1B public access files, um, you you should give them the public access files that request they've requested, but nothing nothing else. You shouldn't just put a stack of all your, your human resources file on a desk in front of them and let them wander through everything I know there. people have said, I have nothing to hide, so please come on in. Right. Well, do, you know what? We have nothing to hide, hopefully, but you still don't want to invite a crazy investigator. Well, I always say, you know, if there's a mad dog on the side, just let it be on the side. Don't kick it. Don't push it. Don't provide more information. Every lawyer is going to tell you, do, do the least, but comply with it without getting yourselves into trouble. And if you feel your documents are not in order, even if you do it before, as long as you try to do it before the investigator knocks on your doors, be proactive, be compliant. Even as soon as you get a knock, prepare your I-9, correct it in those three days and sell them. And don't try to backdate it. Date it now. Mm -hmm. Work with your lawyer. Clean it up. Prepare fresh I-9s and tell them, here's everything we have because we've done it right and we're trying to clean up our mess. As long as you do it before the investigator, it's usually way more helpful than after. And even if you do it bef after, it's better than not doing it at all, which is what we see from time to time. And also, I just uh, something that you both kind of 
pointing out, if ICE asks for I-9s, show them the I-9s. Mm-hmm. If DOL asks for the public access files, show them the mm-hmm. public access files. You're just reminding me of a, a, a case we had many, many years ago where somebody was, like you said, Sheila, trying to be extra diligent, and each of the public access files had all of each of that person's I-9s and all of the supporting documents all in one file because th- that's it was naturally organizational to them for you know Joe Smith to have the public access file and the I-9 all in this one file. And if and any investigator like the I-9 or the DOL investigator were to ask for that, mm-hmm. right, either of them would get all of that information, which would make it easier to share information. And, oh, I didn't even realize that there was this other liability I wasn't focused on. Let me call my buddy up at the Wage and Hour Division because I, I have it here. So the keeping investigators those... investigators hit the jackpot exactly. when, they, when they get a file like right, that. Right, right. So keeping those partitioned, like you need to have a separate public access file. You need to have a separate I-9 file. And maybe you have an additional personnel file that's just not immigration related. But it's important to have separate files to, to be Even though diligent. it's a lot, lot more work in a sense of breaking it up. And sometimes, like Kevin is saying, it doesn't make as much sense organizationally. And for simplicity, you want to put one employee, all of the paperwork in one, mm-hmm. and then hand it over to the officer or to the inspector when they knock on your door. You need to be very, very careful as an employer not to expose yourself more than necessary because the difference can be doubling of your fines or tripling or quadrupling of your fines because of your so-called being nice, which is not required by law and I would call foolish. Um, so as we were saying, try to internal keep internal documents, keep everything in a row. Your public access files and I-9 uh, you know, should all be done ideally before anybody is knocked on your door because the, you could end up with significant fines, even possible debarment from filing H-1 or other immigration benefits, green card cases, etc. So you really want to avoid this. I know that our time is sort of coming very close because we try to wrap this up in 45 minutes. So I want to, on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Chris Drynan, our senior attorney, Kevin Andrews, our H-1B coordinating attorney, and all of us at the Murthy Law Firm. Uh, thank you for joining us today. But more important, if you need help, either before in setting up your systems and cleaning up or when you get the knock on the door, rather than waiting till you're slapped with a letter and fines, coming to us in advance so we can try to clean up and organize the mess and tell you what to do and what not to do, um, we would be honored and happy to help you which is unfortunately an increasing problem and the government and with Trump, they have threatened additional and more investigations of H1 employers. So thank you very much for joining us today and we hope you have a wonderful summer.